Yeah, or I suppose what they could do is if they're in a starvation state, you do the ultrasound, then they can lick themselves clean. <laughs> Tiny bubbles. Tiny bubbles. No offense to the the fine folks at uh, Cliff Products, but their uh, their double shot espresso energy gel, pretty pretty tasty, uh, pretty high in caffeine intake. But man, is that stuff sticky. I think I could take this study and we could, uh, I'm just going to rip it off. You can, we're gonna, down in my neck of the woods and we're going to do down in Tennessee in the South and we're going to do a larger body habitus and I'll just do a, a, you know, a play by play of your, of your method section and, and, and do it. Make me a happy. What mask? So there is a case report this year in the Journal of Military Medicine, aka MilMed, that discusses a healthy armed forces recruit who did an altitude dive at an ice lake at 3,000 meters, or for our uh, friends here in the United States, 9,300 feet. Welcome to the June 2023 edition of the Wilderness Medicine Podcast. We'll discuss our featured article in the journal, then discuss some diving, and high-altitude medicine with a little primer on radio communications. At the end, there's going to be a summary in English, Spanish, and French, but you can skip over that if you want to. So, let's get to it. Hey everybody, today our featured article is about ultrasound, and we know that you in the wilderness and austere medicine community love this stuff. We've talked about ultrasound before, and we're going to talk about an interesting article about ultrasound in the backcountry entitled, Comparison of commonly carried liquids against commercial ultrasound gel for use in the backcountry setting. The premise of this study was a non-inferiority study comparing nine products to ultrasound gel, the official ultrasound gel, and comparing these nine products to assess their suitability as an improvised gel. Tested on two subjects with blinded images graded by ultrasonographers. The group used water, soap, shampoo, olive oil, energy gels, maple syrup, alcohol-based hand sanitizer, sunscreen, and moisturizing lotion to slather all over you. Well, first, let's get to know the authors who will be speaking with us, Jennifer Ray and Dr. J.D. Storn. J.D.? My name is J.D. Storn. I'm an emergency medicine physician and Associate Program Director for our Wilderness and Austere Medicine Program here at Dartmouth Health. Also the Medical Advisor for the White Mountain Snow Rangers and White Mountain Ski Patrol up in the mountains here um, and sort of live most of my life focusing on EMS search and rescue uh, and the intersection between pre-hospital and hospital medicine. Jen, what's your story? So I am a fourth year medical student at Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine right now. And I uh, will actually be starting as an intern in anesthesia at Vanderbilt this summer. So coming down to your neck of the woods. Yeah. Okay. We, we can, we can get this study, we get this arm of the study going. And I'm a self-proclaimed point of care ultrasound enthusiast. Wait, did you hear some guy interject about having Jen in his neck of the woods? Some rando creature? Nope. It is none other than Dr. Fred Bossert with me, very active in the WMS, hailing from the volunteer state. And he's actually going to be conducting the interview while I sit back in my couch, being the creep in the background, listening to Fred discuss the article. Fred, 
Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm Fred Bossard. I'm a board-certified OBGYN. I'm a very active and excited, enthusiastic FOM candidate. I'm the Director of Surgical Skills and Simulation for the University of Tennessee College of Medicine, Chattanooga. Long-standing fan of the show and uh, good to be a guest host today on the podcast. Uh, and, and as Daryl just alluded to, we're going to talk about ultrasound, which is near and dear to my heart. So, it, you know, with the increase in technology and portability of ultrasound in a variety of austere environments, it goes without saying that more and more practitioners of the ultrasonic imaging dark art are availing themselves to the decreasing cost and rising opportunities to take ultrasound into the wilderness. And as an OBGYN uh, and self-proclaimed fanboy of ultrasound, I am especially excited to discuss this article with the authors. If I've learned anything in my pursuit of wilderness wisdom, it's that limited resources drive innovation and necessitate the need for creative and dynamic thinking. Imagine yourself gearing up for an epic adventure into the backcountry or some remote clinic. You know how useful a handheld ultrasound could be on your journey. Why waste precious cubic space and wait on a trip? Bring an ultrasound gel when you already have an available medium ready in tow. Or maybe you just forgot it. Well, our authors at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth set out to tackle this question. Uh, JD and Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So yeah, and so I, I love this idea. And, and I wish I really wish I had thought about it, especially as an OBGYN use ultrasound all the time. Now I know a lot of our EM community use ultrasound all the time too. We don't have the uh, we don't have the, the the exclusivity of that, but as OBGYNs. But I love this idea. And when I saw this article, I just thought, oh my gosh, I wish I had thought this idea up because this is like right up my alley. And then I could just interview myself. But alas, here we are. So common liquids is ultrasound media. So were you just uh, were you on the AT or or in the Himalayas with a handheld ultrasound and a doctor uh, a bottle of Dr. Bronner's soap or what was the what was the impetus for the study? So I, I wish I could tell you that, that this was some critical save that we made in a remote environment with ultrasound, um, but the, the reality is, honestly, it sort of started as a joke. Uh, so, so Dartmouth is located, we're up here in northern New England, and maple syrup, uh, as it turns out, is a really big thing up here. One of the, the quirky things I, I like to point out is that maple syrup is in all of our state protocols for hypoglycemia. Um, oh. But each state is separate. So in Vermont, you have to use real Vermont syrup. In New Hampshire, it has to be New Hampshire maple syrup. New York, that's fantastic. Kind of all, all no, ridiculous and fantastic. I like that little propriety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we were sort of sitting around, and, and I don't remember exactly how it it came up, but we were we're chatting with all of the the various things you can do with with maple syrup, and just sort of the concept of could you use it as an ultrasound gel uh, came up and. We work pretty closely between the, the Waters Medicine faculty and our ultrasound faculty up here. And it was, you know, sort of the idea s sort of sunk. Um, and we just kind of followed it through and did, did a little bit of dive into the literature and, you know, came up. There's a, a number of studies that talk about low resource clinics and, and how you can make ultrasound gel out of materials that you can find at the, the markets there. A little bit of stuff, you know, common stuff. But but really nothing that uses materials that people already carry out in the, the woods with them. So we, we really just sort of wanted to, to dive in and, and see what you could use. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I know when I was talking to some of my uh, some of the residents I work with about this study, they were really excited about it, too. And I said, uh, what, do you, what, kind of, what kind of liquids do you think that they used? And they were they 
basically guessed a lot of the stuff that you all had used. So, you know, that's kind of rolls into my next question. I mean, I think you covered a wide range of of realistic options. Um, What, how did you decide which liquids to use? And what did you use? Lumi was created by an OBGYN to be totally safe and effective. It's made with gentle ingredients and only goes on the outside, not the inside. Stop putting things inside. Yeah, I'm happy to talk a little bit about this one. So in general, our goal was to cover as wide of a spectrum of gel alternatives as we possibly could. But obviously the first concern was for the safety of our models and then also the probes that we were using. And there aren't really any specific guidelines for what is safe for the probes, but for us, this ruled out hydrocarbons, bug sprays, or anything that could potentially be caustic. And our ultrasound staff, um, they were comfortable with anything that was food grade or personal care products, especially because this would be for a specific intermittent use. And we also had to keep it to some kind of manageable number of a representative sample. So we were thinking through thick liquids that would be more commonly carried on a backcountry trip or an expedition. And we ended up choosing liquid soap, uh, shampoo, sunscreen, lotion, olive oil, and energy gels. We also chose water because it's pretty ubiquitous and it is used somewhat routinely for ultrasound. And in addition, like we mentioned, this was a COVID era designed study. So we decided to use alcohol sanitizer, which is being carried more frequently by travelers, uh, particularly in the post pandemic era. And then of course we had to leave maple syrup in there as a nod to the original idea. Yeah, of course. (laughs) And, and for the sponsorship that we should have a disclaimer, this podcast is not officially sponsored by the maple syrup uh, network of Farmers, I guess. <laughs> Maybe Canada should have also been involved. I don't know. Yeah, you actually, for, for our Canadian listener, Canadian listeners, uh, there is a pretty serious uh, maple syrup mafia up in Canada. Oh boy. Yeah, I mean, so think of think of all the industry sponsorship we could get. Uh, you, you could get going forward on this with your next paper. You know, you could just do one purely of uh, of different maple syrup uh, types, or oh, you could go state to state. Here you go. Then you may we may never see you again. They may uh, they may kidnap you and take you off the street. I, I really love I love all those options. And, and like I said, the, talking to some of the residents, they were who are avid hikers and and, and love to get into backpacking. They they, they it was so interesting that, that some of the things that they had come up with, which what you guys hit. So that was really nice, I think, to to sort of see that. Yeah, um, I hope they covered the- everything that they suggested. No, you did. You did like and, and and then some. So people were like, oh yeah, that makes sense. They did this and. And that was just them off the top of their their head, you know, trying to trying to guess with it. But you did, and so that was I thought that was cool. Um, as far as the study goes, so I know that the sonographers themselves were not blinded, but the reviewers of the ultrasound images were. So tell us a little bit about the process from obtaining the images to to review. So our goal was basically to standardize our procedure as much as possible, so that we could really isolate the effect of each gel alternative. Like I mentioned, we had our commercial gel and then we had our nine gel alternatives. Then we wanted to choose eight windows that cover both the most common ultrasound indications and then also a variety of depths and tissue types. So this led us to choose the EFAS windows, the parasternal long and short axes, and the antecubital and popliteal fossa. I actually asked two of my medical student peers very nicely if they would be our ultrasound models, and they agreed to do that. 
So we had our two sonographers and both are emergency medicine attendings with wilderness fellowship training. And one is actually JD um, and each ultrasound one of our models. So ultimately this got us to 160 recorded clips. We ended up uploading these clips to our ultrasound imaging platform called Synchronicity, and we sent them to our two reviewers. And our two reviewers were also emergency medicine attendings, and they have ultrasound fellowship training. We randomized the images for them into blocks. So what we had the reviewers do is watch all of the clips from a certain window together, but they didn't know which gel alternative they were viewing. But you are right that we randomized the clips for our reviewers, but we were not able to blind the sonographers to the gel alternative they were using. And ultimately, that was just a practicality issue. So when our sonographers were ultrasounding, we figured, you know, they would probably be able to tell if they were using maple syrup or lotion. So we just weren't really able to do that in the end. Sure. With all the ants and, you know, and bees and insects coming in. Yeah. And bears, yeah, and bears, they love it. <laughs> yeah, no, that I mean that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I I, I love how that how that's uh, how that's done. I would say that whenever you're having to have other people, I don't know, it, it participate in your study, especially with like in medical school. Sometimes it always can uh, it, it can be interesting. I remember having a uh, when I was a medical student, we had to do I think place EKG leads on one of the one of the. Uh, I don't know, uh, actors or whatever, but they weren't available. So our Dean, uh, our, uh, filled in and he had the hairiest chest and we're all just looking at each other like what's going on. So then there I am shaving the Dean of medicine's chest to put EKG leads on. And, 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 you know, it, it would be different if it was just like in his office. Fortunately it was not, it was like, there was lots of us around. Right. So, but I, I've, my friends still give me uh, a hard time about that. So it's always, it's always good to get, <laughs> it always makes for good stories and always have nice to have good involvement with, uh, everybody uh, in the whole process from start to finish medical students residents attendings it really it really brings a brings everybody together when you're when you're all together on the uh, on, on a study so that's great um interestingly to me the whole thing was interesting really but interesting interestingly to me sunscreen was the outlier in your primary assessment but in the secondary assessment it was not so why was this the case I think there's a couple interesting things about about sunscreen that is different, and I'll, I'll talk about those in a second. But the the first point is that our, our primary and secondary outcomes are really measuring two different things. So our primary outcome was just sort of a very broad overview, kind of a holistic approach, and just the the general gestalt. Could the reviewers look at what the images we produced with enough fidelity to be able to make a clinical decision. I mean, that, that's sort of a low, low bar from folks that are used to QAing ultrasounds on, on very finite details. Um, but again, we, we really wanted to keep this practical for, for the people in the field. We're not, we're not trying to measure flow across a gradient in a heart valve right now, right? We, ju we just want to, can, can somebody make a decision? So that was, that's our sort of primary endpoint. And then the, the secondary endpoints, we really were trying to to nail down and look at the technical specifics of each substance. So we sort of follow the similar metrics to what they use for the QA process. So we were, we're looking at the contrast between tissue types and white and black balance. Is that there, is there enough resolution sort of specifically looking at the, the edges of organs and things like that to, to be able to delineate that. And then was there abnormal artifact in the images? 
none of those things in particular, or maybe it wasn't bad enough to make an effect. Um, so I think there's probably some aspect of the, the substances that we're not measuring in those three predefined secondary endpoints that account for the, the overall image quality. Um, I, I think the, the interesting thing to look at from a sunscreen standpoint is it's, its whole purpose is to deflect ultraviolet wa waves. And so is, is there something in there that's, that's affecting the ultrasound? Uh, this study is, is not pow powered enough to make that decision, but uh, I think it's just sort of an interesting academic point. Yeah, and and that makes that makes a lot of sense, um, actually. And I think Jen, you had alluded to before talking about the, you know using water uh, as a medium, um, and you included the information of, of previous studies on the use of water baths as as a medium. How do you how do you think this would play into general use? Um, in general, as you probably know, air is the enemy of ultrasound, and anything that is going to get rid of the air pockets between the probe and the skin surface should work. And in the literature, it is well documented that a water bath is extremely effective for any part of the body that can be submerged. So specifically extremities, arms, and legs. The issue is like, as our sonographers noted, water obviously doesn't have particularly good adherence. So it's gonna have obvious limitations if you're trying to ultrasound the core, um, especially if you're in a place where water is in short supply. And if you are in an austere setting with a body of water nearby, like a river, um, and you're planning to use that to submerge, you'd have to be really cognizant about the risk of hypothermia or exposure to the patient. And ultimately for this study, like we mentioned, we wanted to keep it as standardized as possible between the gel alternatives. So we decided not to use the submersion method specifically for water. And there actually have also been some thoughts about maybe using Ziploc bags or something similar to that to contain water or basically any liquid that has a lower viscosity. But we did not want to do that in our study just because that would be opening up another variable that would be difficult to control for. And in terms of freezing, so freezing could definitely be an issue with any water-based liquid um, if you're working in sub-zero temps. In practical terms though, if your medium is frozen, there are probably some other issues that would make ultrasound a lower clinical priority as well. So for example, the risk of hypothermia when ultrasounding, and then also it's, it's difficult to say what the operational limits of any specific ultrasound device would be in freezing temps. So, you know, at the very least, your battery might not be working as well on your device. And then not to mention, even with some of these thicker viscosity gels, they're going to be firmer at lower temperatures. They're going to be harder to use, harder to clean up. So basically there's kind of, there's a lot of variables to be thinking about if you're ultrasounding in sub-zero temps above and beyond the use of freezing water-based coupling agents. Yeah. That make, makes sense. Makes perfect sense. What, uh, what are some of the limitations of this study? Yeah, I think the biggest limitation of our study is just the user-dependent nature of ultrasound. You know, we have had people that had, were already trained in ultrasound doing it in a controlled environment and reviewed by people that have ultrasound fellowship training. So it's it may be a little bit hard to extrapolate that out to someone that is just, lear just learning how to use ultrasound, just learning how to trust their own images and having to do it in an austere environment. 
Sure. It's a steep learning curve. I mean, we, if all of us who know how to do it, know it's the, you know, you go from one day of like, I don't see anything to, you know, it, this, uh, you know, work of art looks like, you know, Michelangelo took, you know, took the image, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, it's hard to say, but I think it, I think we did show that the, the gel that you're using shouldn't have significant impact on the images you can obtain. You just have to physically be able to obtain those, those images. The, you know, there's a couple, one of the things that, that came up that I, I don't have a great answer for is we had significant trouble with the parasternal short view across, across the study um, that was really an outlier across all of the, the gels that we chose. And it's, it's a little bit hard to say whether that's just the ultrasonographers, myself included, just kind of suck at that view, uh, which is possible. The, the other thing is I, I suspect that we marked the models early on so that we could replicate the exact same views with, with every gel substance. And if, if those marks had been a little bit off, that error would have, would have propagated throughout the study, which is, which is probably what happened there. You know, we're, we're a little bit limited on what substances we were able to choose because they're, you know, there's, there's no way that the, the ultrasound manufacturers are going to approve each and every one of these substances for their transducers. So I think you have to be a little bit cautious about what what substances you're gonna gonna choose, both for, for the safety of your your patients and the the probes themselves. Okay, if I could interject as well with a question. So we've talked about multiple substances. We've talked about alcohol-based gel, but not hydrocarbons per se. Are there any other substances that you're aware of that would not be a good idea? to use with respect to an improvised or as an improvised ultrasound gel, not necessarily in terms of human safety. Obviously we don't want to dissolve somebody's skin, but substances that might destroy the footprint of the ultrasound probe, things like that. Can you think of anything that shouldn't be used? So the biggest one we were concerned about was the various bug sprays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, in those, I don't, you know, really not sure what the, the chemical effect of the, the bug spray itself is, and then what the the carrier carrier solutions for the different aerosols were. Um, so that we had a pretty high concern about damaging the probes with that one. You know, I think it's, I would think sort of common sense that using fuel oil or something like that is is probably not the best thing to put on your patient. But if, if you know, the other thing is thinking if you're in a sort of more clinic or in remote industrial environment, you know, keeping away from sort of oils and lubricants and other sort of industrial stuff that, that, you know, it it may well work, but I I just can't vouch for the safety of those things. Right. Something flammable, such as certain hydrocarbons and DEET is hydrocarbon based. Something that you could probably start a fire with, such as what might be in your survival pack, for instance, DEET or alcohol wipes, which are excellent for starting fires. But again, Maybe not so good for the ultrasound probe. More volatile substances. Higher flash point, yeah. Yep. 1040 motor oil, probably not a good idea. WD-40 or other lubricants, hmm, no bueno. So how did you clean the probes, and did you have any known probe damage after the study was completed? Yeah, so we, we cleaned them in between with the standard gray top wipes that, were, that are approved for ultrasound cleaning in the hospital. Um, and all of the all of the gel substances we used uh, were cleaned off with those without any any difficulty. 
it, it is interesting you mentioned flammable specifically with respect to the the alcohol hand sanitizer um, that that is at least in that specific case pretty ubiquitous across the the hospital environment and our our ultrasound folks were pretty comfortable with us using that and it evaporates so quick and, and tends and, and fortunately because it's alcohol based doesn't leave the the residue that you know some of the other hydrocarbon petroleum based things would you know that would still potentially have that flammability so it's kind of g- gone and done once it evaporates so that's good yeah so the body habits of your models you use two you use the two, two sculpted adonises I think I could take this study and we could, uh, I'm just going to rip it off. You can, we're down in my neck of the woods and we're going to do down in Tennessee in the South and we're going to do a larger body habitus and I'll just do a, a, you know, a play by play of your, of your method section and, and, and do it. Cause I think that would be an interesting thing to, to, to show. It, it probably would be fine. You're just going to have a difficult time getting the images because of the, all the adipose tissue and the depth that you'd have to scan to. But, um, but still I, I, I may make it into the wilderness medical journal yet. I mean, I think you you have you you open up the opportunity to try it on all all different types of you know you could try climbers versus bikers versus hunters versus fishermen and see if that changes. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's so. Then that's my next question: is what what so what next? What 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 are you going to do with this? Uh, with this, what's the next step for for y'all? I think the you know the biggest thing is is now trying to get it out and actually try and get things out in the usable in the field. You know, I think this is. From, from our standpoint, really sort of preliminary pilot kind of data. And we, we made a big effort to fix every variable that we could to, to isolate it down to just the, the gels. And now that we proved that that's possible and you know, technologically realistic, I think that the next step would be to actually try and roll this out to the field and, and start playing with you know, what environment is, does, does it actually work in. No, for sure. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think it's an, aw- an awesome study and it was a pleasure to read and it's very poignant to a lot of people that nowadays use ultrasound and have that, that handheld portable portability. So I think that's, uh, it's awesome. I, I, I appreciate y'all doing it. Um, are there any other points that you wanted to bring up or add? Yeah. I mean, I think you, you know, you sort of lead it into, I think we're, we're in the very early stages of, of what can be done with these handheld ultrasound units. And you know, I, I kind of hope this, this study sort of paves the way uh, to, to take away people's concerns and, and get those things actually out into the field and, and out to the point of injury. The, the one other thing I, I think is, was sort of stuck, no, no pun intended, literally stuck in our minds. No offense to the, the fine folks at uh, Cliff Products, but their, uh, their double shot espresso energy gel, pretty, pretty tasty, uh, pretty high in caffeine intake. But man, is that stuff sticky? Yeah, I was gonna say, but that's not fun to clean off. Yeah, that uh, the the ultrasound models uh, took a took a few wipes to get them clean after that one. That's like that's one of those. If you next time you do this in, in the order of things, if you do it on on different uh, on different body types, you could do it with uh, that'll go last, right? Because <laughs> that'll go last. Here's a can of wipes. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, or I suppose what they could do is if they're in a starvation state. You do the ultrasound, then they can let themselves clean. Yeah, really, you know, make full use of everything, right? Yeah, that's right. Leave no trace. Yeah, I, I think la- I think lastly, you know, just would would kind of be be remiss if I, if I didn't mention, you know, I don't think we're actually recommending any of these as better or you know as a first pass over over standard ultrasound gel, but but just to say that the techno- technically speaking, you can use it. 
Yeah. And, and non-inferior. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Awesome. Like, like I said, I was so excited. <laughs> so excited to see this. I was like, man, and not that I don't like the snake and venomation stuff that's in the journal. It's fantastically interesting too. But when I saw this, I was like, oh, I can use this because I'm not going to Thailand anytime soon. But this, this I can use, you know, this, this will be, uh, this was, it, was a, it was a fun read and well done. All I want is for so to summarize, all media except sunscreen were non-inferior to commercial gel in the ability to make a clinical decision. In terms of secondary outcomes, resolution, artifact, and contrast, all substances were non-inferior to commercial gel, but the energy gel, well, it was very sticky. Thanks to Fred, Jen, JD for the interesting discussion. And with that, Folks, it's time again for that deep dive. Diving medicine, that is. Diving and marine medicine isn't always on the radar of many of our listeners who might favor mountain or high-altitude medicine or associated activities. Let me warn you, this is going to be a bit of a curvy tour we're going to talk about. First, we'll discuss the importance of specialized training. Then we're going to go on a to a paper in emergency medicine that hopefully relates the importance of always being prepared. Then we'll discuss some communication skills that might get overlooked in our wilderness medicine training, then give you a primer on diving, ultimately putting things together with diving at altitude. On previous podcast editions, we discussed updates on the Diploma of Mountain Medicine, the DIM, and many of our wilderness fellows partake in our DIM here at the University of New Mexico or through the WMS. Some of you across the pond have been involved with other DIM programs. All right. So why bother with the DIM if you're not a fellow or if you're not planning on actively being on an expedition or a mountain rescue team or some other health capacity in the mountains? Well, the DIM programs worldwide offer an experience not only of mountain rescue and a thorough knowledge of mountain emergency medicine and travel medicine, but it also makes our DIM candidates think outside of the box, how to improvise and how to do it under pressure whether it is under a time imposition or under environmental or psychological stress. I mean, imagine being new to the vertical world where you're doing a scenario 100 feet or more off the deck, hanging off a cliff, having to not only care for a patient, but also be mindful of proper tie-in procedures and hauling methods, all while you're in a windy snowstorm with limited visibility. It all comes to repetitive practice in adverse environments. Well, you might say to yourself, self, this sort of training doesn't pertain to me. Here I am, I'm comfortable being in my couch, hey, working in my hospital, my clinic. I've got my high-tech devices, so who needs to improvise? Well, the other day, I was perusing an article called First Attempt Intubation Success Among Emergency Medicine Trainees by Garcia et al. from the Annals of Emergency Medicine of this year. In this paper, video laryngoscopy, hyperangulated video laryngoscopy, and direct laryngoscopy with, uh, with those three modalities. Yeah, those three were studied with regard to success rates among emergency medicine residents. And while all residents improved in all three techniques as they progressed in their training, well, one would expect that video laryngoscopy was and would be much more successful in all cases. Now, interestingly, the authors conclude that 
Video laryngoscopy should be the standard for adult airways, and direct laryngoscopy should be reserved for those unusual circumstances such as severe amounts of blood or vomitus, which could inhibit fiber optic visualization. Many of our EM trainees do prefer video laryngoscopy, but there's something to be said with good old-fashioned direct laryngoscopy. Really, if you fail at a high-tech video laryngoscopy technique and you go to DL, direct laryngoscopy, because the airway is really bad, as they purport, but you haven't had enough practice in direct laryngoscopy, guess what? You're going to fail, baby, because you did not practice that technique. Now, in this interesting study, the authors concluded that video laryngoscopy should be predominantly used, but I argue that both VL, video laryngoscopy, and DL should be practiced with the presence of an experienced attending. Now, blah, blah, blah. You might be muttering to yourself, Yo, Dario, what you talk about this? It shows that having alternative techniques is still important, even in our tech and AI-rich lives. Practicing for rare events is going to be the only way you'll get better at something. In the same way, practicing in simulated adverse events is wise in mountain medicine. Ha! Simulation, let me now wax poetic. Even as a quote-unquote mountain person, you might find yourself in a water or ocean environment. How do you prepare for that rare emergency, a drowning, for example? You see that mountain over there? Yeah, one of these days I'm going to climb that mountain. Oh, I get it. If I'm comfortable with video laryngoscopy, it's like sin. That video laryngoscopy is like mountain medicine. Ooh, I'm so comfortable. But what you're saying is that rare direct laryngoscopy is kind of like a drowning for a mountain medicine guy like me. Gee, I guess I should be an all-around wilderness medicine expert, huh? Oh, play me some mountain music Like Grandma and Grandpa used to play Then I'll float on down the river One good way is to take a diploma in diving and marine medicine offered by the WMS, otherwise known as the DIDM, D-I-D-M-M. Yep, let me shamelessly tout the DIDM. It's comprised of diving medicine, marine medicine, sciences, as well as medicine at sea, maybe even how to use a sailboat. You can look up the exact course topics for this diploma course online. But diving emergencies such as dysbarisms, a.k.a. air pressure-related injuries, nitrogen narcosis, what? Submersion injuries, marine envenomations, and some other things that we will touch upon in a hot minute are discussed. One interesting component is survival and navigation at sea, which includes a component of electronic communication, radio communication. This is where we're going to talk about how communication can break down. Well, I'm going to segue into this. We just got back from a really cool retreat for the Southwest Wilderness Medicine Fellowship Programs. The fellows and program directors from UCSD, UCI, San Antonio, Colorado, Utah, and of course, New Mexico went. And we went to Catalina Island. I call it Cat Island, but there aren't a lot of cats there. There's more buffalo, I guess, or bison. I think it was the first retreat of this kind with the intention of forming cohesiveness and having educational fun in the marine environment. The amazing thing was some of the instructors from the DIDM, which was held the week before, and we're talking about May 2023, 
included doctors Christian Coffey, Lauren Alshush, Laney Yu, and, and Daniel Brenning. The queen of marine envenomations, Dr. Isabel Algase, who I interviewed on the last podcast and strongly recommends not peeing on people, rounded out the educational extravaganza. Well, I reckon that Dr. Mia Durstein from Colorado gave a real nice talk on poisonous plants for us land sharks on Cat Island. You remember Nick Weiss? Dr. Nick Weiss? Yes. He discussed bad water with Russ Reinbold, and he's finishing out his Wilderness Medicine Fellowship at UNM. Nick, how was that May Southwest Marine Med retreat? Uh, first off, let me say it was fantastic. But uh, secondly, let me say thanks for having me back on the podcast. It's been about eight months since I was last on, so I wasn't sure if I was going to be invited back or not. <laughs> oh, you made the cut, baby. Well, thank you. Yeah, we had 14 folks on Catalina Island off the coast of California. We all met up after some nice climbs in Joshua Tree. Plenty of water sports were to be had, as well as some games, and of course, boat trips with the LA County Baywatch lifeguards, and a nice visit to the Catalina Hyperbaric Chamber. We would have night talks on dive medicine, a journal club on marine medicine, some land-based talks on plant poisons, and of course, some survival and land navigation refreshers. Of course, we had a big old scenario to put all the things together that we learned, and it was interesting to see that there's always room to learn simple navigation techniques, and in the scenario, folks did well with the navigation. Let's listen to some snippets from the scenario Dario. She's uh, on the shore now, and they were wondering if you could help them know what to do to check to see if she's bleeding, because there's a pool of blood under her. A pool of blood under her. Is the patient wearing a wetsuit? Yes. Please take the wetsuit off of the patient and find where the source of bleeding is. Well, that's going to be gonna take a while. I don't know. I, I don't, like, don't I want to stop where it's bleeding from? Do you, can you see a place where it is bleeding from? She did the five by Can you say that again? Can they see where the blood is coming from? If they cannot, then they will need to take off the wetsuit to find out that. What mask? Also, however much space um, is missing in the skin, I need you to push your fingers into <clears throat> that area. Sounds like she might be coding. <laughs> and put that quick clock bandage in the wound where the blood is coming from and still hold pressure. I got it. I didn't get the last message. Please repeat. Okay, so you have your finger on it and you have the quick clot bandage in the wound. Can you tell me again what other supplies you have in that bag? One of the interesting things I noticed was 
how hard it is to communicate on a radio as an experienced provider to someone who might not be as experienced on the other end. In search and rescue, without the luxury of lots of experienced rescuers, Nick, we, or drones or helicopters, this issue comes up fairly frequently where you have to be deliberate and you have to explain in plain English and intervention you want a non-medically trained person next to the patient to provide while waiting for experienced rescuers. Nick, do you have any insight on proper comms etiquette or procedures when talking on a radio? Yeah, Daryl, I sure do. Thanks for bringing that up. I think as medical providers, we may not be super experienced with this. And I think I've got a few things that can help us out uh, if we ever find ourselves in a scenario like this. I think one of the you know first things we've got to do with two-way radios is make sure that they're working. We need to do a radio check. So that means making sure we've got functioning batteries that we're on the same frequency. Uh, the next thing you want to do once you get these things on is you want to do a sound check. Simply something like, hey, can you hear me? Make sure you're on the same frequency and that you're receiving the other person's communication. There's a couple of other really key points. Uh, when you're talking on a radio, it's much different than a cell phone. Only one party can speak at a time. So having clear and slow speech is very important. You wanna make what you're saying quite brief. You don't wanna add in a lot of fluff. Just say what you're trying to get across and keep it as simple and as brief as possible. I think it's also helpful to identify call signs uh, with each other before you get on the radio. This makes it easy to identify who is speaking and make sure you identify yourself with that call sign or your name if you're simply using that each time you get on the radio. There's a few other things uh, that are important to know. Uh, there's some common terms that are used with radios. These are actually called pro terms. Uh, there's just a few we'll discuss uh, that I think will be helpful to our audience. So one of the first things you wanna do if you're the party reaching out to another party is you wanna say, come in. That's a good way to check to make sure that they are actually receiving what you're saying. And their reply is going to be, go ahead. You're going to say what you're going to say. At the end of that, the party receiving your message should say something like copy, or I like to be a little bit more familiar with my uh, uh, party I'm speaking to. So I'll say good copy. Either of those work well. If you don't hear the message, simply say, say again to the party that reached out to you. This is a nice, clean, simple way of engaging them to let them know you didn't understand what they said. One of the other things that's important to say when you are done with your bit of conversation is to say that by um, using the phrase over. That's super helpful. It's, it's simple and it lets them know you're done saying what you're going to say. When the conversation is completely over, the last party to talk will simply say out. That lets the, uh, the other party know that the conversation is over for the time being. One additional thing that I think is helpful to, to throw out there is if there's an emergency or uh, something that's changed that you immediately need to notify the other party of is say, break, break, break. This is a good way to indicate that this is an emergent piece of conversation that needs to get uh, translated to the other party. Those are just some quick, simple tips. I think that can make radio communication a little bit easier for those of us who may not be super experienced with it. <laughs> Go ahead, Daryl. I have a helicopter problem. Do you copy? Good copy, Daryl. I'm just, folks, we're just trying to give you an idea of how this works. All right, uh, Nick and team, let's come in. Go ahead. Okay, good copy. Uh, you know, I think that... <laughs> Say again? I, I think uh, there's a cat in my throat. Over. Good copy. Over. Over and out, Daryl. Break, break, break. We got an 
emergency. That's basically it, right? That's it. Oh, man. That's all I need to know. Crushed it. Crushed it, man. Well, getting back to the normal hour, we wanted to briefly discuss diving at altitude. This was one of the talks we had on Cat Island. Yep, as I promised you hypoxia enthusiasts out there, a discussion on altitude is coming, but diving at altitude. Who on earth would be interested in doing such an activity, diving at altitude? You gotta be kidding me. Can you imagine wearing your scuba outfit while ice climbing on a high mountain? Well, believe it or not, there are such sports enthusiasts out there. And one of the highest dives achieved was at an altitude of 19,400 feet, 5,900 meters at a volcano called Lake Lacancabur in the Chilean Andes. The water is cold and you can plunge three to four meters deep to the bottom. Imagine that, having to hike up to this lake, which obviously requires proper altitude acclimatization. Then you finally get to the water. Hopefully you're going to go in with a dry suit, yet you can still get hypothermic. Then you go down and then you surface up, hopefully without incurring some decompression sickness. When suddenly, on arrival to the top of the lake, you get AMS or worse. As a side note, an interesting differential diagnosis for a headache besides AMS in a diver is going to be a nitrogen-related issue as a cause for headaches. Nitrogen itself can cause headaches. I mean, we will see people with headaches even at sea level who breathe through their tank rapidly, and it appears that nitrogen is the culprit. Or maybe they're not breathing enough, and it ends up that an accumulation of carbon dioxide is causing the headache. And guess what? Nitrogen itself is inflammatory to the endothelium or inner lining of the blood vessels. But Nick, let's talk nitrogen. That's, that's why you are known as Nitrogen Nick. That's right, old Nitro Nick. That's me. In uh, all formal settings, I prefer to go by Nitro Nick. Uh, Nitro has some interesting effects on the body. If you're breathing compressed air in deep dive, you could imagine this, that the nitrogen in your alveoli go into your circulation, and because it's a gas, it stays a gas. The nitrogen is not consumed by the body. In other words, it is inert. If you were to surface too quickly, the dissolved nitrogen gas in your blood would form bubbles which would lead to large gas emboli into your brain, causing cerebral arterial gas embolism, AGE, which would usually occur rapidly after ascent to the surface. Or in six hours or more, you could have a more slow expression of bubbles in various tissues, leading to decompression sickness, the most well-known entity called the bends, where bubbles form in the joints and expand, giving pain in those areas. Tiny bubbles make me warm all over. Well, either way, folks, you need a decompression chamber. On any dive, Nick, I mean, we try to minimize any nitrogen load. For those breathing compressed air, it's important to understand that there might be some residual nitrogen hanging around in your tissues. If you get too much nitrogen in your tissue, say, after a prolonged dive, an extremely deep dive or repetitive dives, one dive after another, you might supersaturate the body with nitrogen, which could lead to complications. Nitrogen can also make you feel drunk or euphoric at depths beyond 60 to 80 feet, impairing decision-making. For instance, at 100 feet, the effect of a high partial pressure, you can think of it as a concentration, but a high partial pressure of nitrogen in the brain will make you do silly things like 
give your air regulator to the surrounding fish. Divers colloquially call this effect the Martini's Law. For every 60 feet or 18 meters you go down, the nitrogen effect is similar to drinking a martini. Shaken, not stirred. Something called Boyle's Law plays into this. What is Boyle's Law? It's not just simply boiling a pot of water, although you could think of it like that. The bubbles, as they rise to the top of the surface, get larger. So what happens is we breathe this compressed air. And you could think of the deeper you go down, the more those bubbles get squished and they get shoved from your alveoli into the circulation. Basically, it's saying that the more pressure you have, the less volume you have. But then when you go up to the surface, like those big bubbles that you're boiling in that pot of water, well, the bubbles are getting bigger. The volume is expanding as the surrounding pressure becomes less. And that's the good old Boyle's Law, PV equals NRT. But let's take these principles that we're talking about. Boyle's Law. There's a bunch of other laws I could just bore you with. Let's take it to high altitude. There aren't really any highly scientific validated dive tables for altitude diving, unlike the multiplicity of dive tables we have for sea level and below. We do have Navy dive tables for altitude, but sometimes they work and they're only good for about 10,000 feet of altitude. Now there are dive computers. Newer dive computers attempt to calculate the proper depth and times, but they should also be used with caution. So there's something important here called an equivalent depth, which is the altitude of your dive depth. You multiply that by the pressure at sea level that was divided by the pressure at altitude. So what ends up happening is that you wanted to dive at 19,000 feet, 5,900 meters of altitude, and you want to go down for four measly meters. The equivalent depth would end up being eight and a half meters according to the formula I just described for equivalent depth. This is commonly known as a cross correction. What's happening is we're actually shoving more nitrogen or concentrating it. The partial pressure of nitrogen is increasing when we go down deep, but it's like breathing at eight and a half meters at sea level, even though you're at high altitude. So do the cross correction, learn how to do dive tables. It's probably going to be more accurate then the dive table that you're provided with, given that that dive table that I just described is only good for about 10,000 feet. You should take a specialized course to learn how to altitude dive. But remember that the temperature of the water could also influence the equivalent depth a bit as well. So if you're diving on air, let's just say we have 78, 79% nitrogen on regular air. Well, when you go diving, it's still the same amount of nitrogen. If you go up too quickly or ascend too quickly, well, those nitrogen-related issues are going to happen. You're going to have those bubbles come out of solution quicker. The other thing you have to keep apprised of is that you will dive for a shorter amount of time at altitude compared to sea level, and you're going to ascend at about half the speed that you would normally do for an ocean dive when you go up to the surface. And then you have to consider a time to wash out some of that excess nitrogen from your bloodstream and the blood. And sometimes what we will do is if we've incurred a lot of nitrogen in our tissues, we'll take a five-minute rest stop. The problem is to do a rest stop that's done for five minutes. It's usually done at about three meters 
which is pretty close to the actual depth of the lake that we're talking about. Now, once you ascend, this is your only dive for day. Sorry, no more dives, single dive. Do not do a repetitive dive. Things get complicated when you dive with nitrox, which it has a higher concentration of oxygen and subsequently a lower concentration of nitrogen, or more accurately, a lower partial pressure of nitrogen. But nitrox, this is what we call that, minimizes those terrible nitrogen bubbles from the headaches to the other issues that we've talked about. But if you go too deep on oxygen, you could get oxygen toxicity. You could get seizures. That's going to end your climbing diving trip pretty quickly, folks. You can opt for something crazy called trimix. It's a technical diving that substitutes a lot of that nitrogen for helium with a proper amount of oxygen added in. Then you also exhale your carbon dioxide and it's scrubbed out. Now, this is really complicated. Do not do if you are not initiated in diving. In brief, if you want to dive with compressed air at altitude, go for it. But be careful and make sure you acclimatize first. Remember that ascending too fast might give you decompression sickness and a really bad form of AMS or worse, es muy complicado. Let's talk about a review article, Frontiers in Physiology, October 2022 by Tetzloff, Eric Swenson, and Peter Barsh. Imagine yourself doing a nice scuba dive at altitude. As you go lower, you're going to get a substantial redistribution of venous blood from the extremities into the chest and thorax, increasing your pulmonary artery and capillary pressures. Aggravated by deeper and deeper water immersion with that constrictive wetsuit or dry suit, with cold water temperatures and exercise worsening these pulmonary artery pressures. You gotta be a really good holy diver, huh, Nick? Daryl, thanks for that trip down memory lane of uh, high school and college physics. I've come to be quite nostalgic uh, for those courses, um, but thank you for doing that. My brain hurts a little bit. Let me rub your brain with nitrogen. Thank you, thank you. So there is a case report this year in the Journal of Military Medicine, a.k.a. MilMed, that discusses a healthy armed forces recruit who did an altitude dive at an ice lake at 3,000 meters, or for our uh, friends here in the United States, 9,300 feet. This was somewhere in Utah. The diver was gung-ho for certain, but during the dive, he experienced dyspnea while diving and cut the day short. There was some nice frothy sputum coming out of him. After getting him out of the water, rewarming him, and giving him oxygen, he would subsequently recover. But there's a couple questions that remain. Was this hypoxia-induced vasoconstriction from high-altitude pulmonary edema, aka HAPE? I don't know, hard to say. Or was this a true dive injury? Similar presentations have been described in triathletes and swimmers in the open sea, as well as divers suffering from dyspnea attributable to pulmonary edema in cold water. It also happened in Trimix technical divers. You know, the crazy ones that dive with oxygen, nitrogen, and helium. With history like this, you are potentially looking at high altitude pulmonary edema, HAPE, but you also have to consider something else that some of you may not have on your radar. Immersion pulmonary edema, or IPE. Not IPA, but IPE. Yep, both IPE and HAPE are similar in that they can occur in young, healthy, and fit individuals with clinical features, such as the liberation of pink-tinged fluid from the lungs and a similar radiographic feature. Both are associated with exercise, and they recur in susceptible individuals. And 
both will have a rapid recovery, relatively rapid recovery in a normal environment, but the differences are also interesting. IPE will occur within one to two hours after immersion, whereas high altitude pulmonary edema occurs slowly over one and a half days to several days at high altitude. Interestingly, immersion in water at 20 degrees Celsius can cause an immediate increase of pulmonary artery wedge pressures on an average of 18 uh, millimeters of mercury, which is the critical threshold for edema formation, but in immersion pulmonary edema susceptible individuals only. With cold water temperatures, higher sympathetic tone, and some exercise, along with an increase in hydrostatic pressure, voila! Ah, voila, c'est le français. There you have it. This increased preload with, with emergence can increase wall stiffness and impairment of diastolic dysfunction, which can be bad news for older individuals with systemic hypertension. Well, both immersion pulmonary edema and HAPE can have increased mean pulmonary artery pressures, yet the magnitude of this increase is considerably greater in HAPE individuals. Well, Nick, I know you. You're a breath hole diver. You are a total fish, maybe a guppy. I don't know. But you're probably thinking to yourself, uh, dude, I can't get IPE. I no can't way. even get an IPA, man. No, AB, not around not, here, not around Dry here baby. Dry country. <laughs> well, sorry, you're not so lucky either, pal. <laughs> IPE has been reported in such individuals as well, the breath hole divers. And lowering pulmonary artery pressures in HAPE susceptible subjects with nifedipine or a PDE5 inhibitor prevents HAPE. Anecdotally, sildenafil has also been reported to prevent IPE in susceptible individuals. Now, the pink frothy sputum is predominant in advanced stages of HAPE, but hemoptysis, this is interesting, Nick, it tends to have more frequency in individuals with IPE associated with diving. And it appears that HAPE and IPE, whereas they're pretty much both non-inflammatory hydrostatic pulmonary edemas caused by different mechanisms, remember that HAPE is hypobaric hypoxia, and IPE is more of a redistribution of volume into the central circulation. But one wonders if you could have concurrent pathologies occurring at or after an altitude dive. Remember that HAPE also increases your pulmonary artery pressures because of hypoxia. Well, the article that we were discussing by Tetzlav and Swenson and Barch, it's an interesting article, but unfortunately, it's not really that conclusive about any obvious treatment strategies. But because you're all responsible divers, you're going to carry oxygen and you'll administer it to such an affected individual with either malady. There doesn't seem to be any downsides to giving nifedipine or a PDE5 inhibitor, but warming an individual and also getting down to lower altitudes seems prudent in either entity. Honestly, I've never seen a case of immersion pulmonary edema. Have you, Nick? No, I can't say that I have. No. Oh, man. But we've definitely seen some high-altitude pulmonary edemas, and it doesn't clear that quick. Well, Nick, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls out there in podcast land, there you have it. An interesting article on improvised ultrasound gels and some more dive medicine with a whiff of altitude, little communication skills, and what have you. You would like to buy a hamburger. Folks, we're trying something different now. An article, Take Home Point and a very concise summary on immersion pulmonary edema versus high-altitude pulmonary edema in English, Spanish, and French. 
Skip over this if you want. We're going to try this out to see if folks from across the world find the translation idea useful. In the article, the authors compared certain ultrasound liquids. Should an ultrasonographer in the mountains not have gel? Additionally, why carry extra weight in ultrasound gel when you can improvise? Absolutely. Well, the authors are from the northeastern United States where maple syrup is readily obtained. Pre-hospital medicine protocols over there include maple syrup for hypoglycemia reversal. The authors ask themselves, well, would maple syrup be useful as a substitute for ultrasound gel? Now, that's a fascinating idea. The medium used and all the mediums that they used had to be harmless to the ultrasound models and had to be materials that could be commonly obtained in a given household or as a food-grade product. Water, soap, shampoo, olive oil, energy gels, alcohol-based hand sanitizer, sunscreen, skin lotion, and maple syrup were used. The idea of using some hydrocarbon-based substances such as DEET, motor oil, or other lubricants are likely bad for the probe and are not ideal for human use either. Use of alcohol gel is probably okay, but it can cause issues with the ultrasound probe footprint and may void the warranty from an ultrasound manufacturer. Although the sonographers were not blinded, those reviewing the ultrasound scans were blinded. The EFAST, cardiac, and popliteal vein views were chosen. 160 recordings were obtained, and the sonographers were emergency medicine attendings with Wilderness Medicine Fellowship training. And the reviewers were also emergency medicine attendings with ultrasound experience. Overall, all improvised gels were non-inferior except for the energy gel, which was felt to be very, very sicky. The study design was good, but although it is obvious that mm, you might not have maple syrup in your backpack, maybe honey would work. There are likely other improvised substances that were not studied. Interestingly, sunscreen was not suitable as a substitute gel. Nick and me briefly discussed a trip we took to Catalina Island off the coast of California with a group of Wilderness Medicine Fellowship programs from the Southwest United States. There's a scenario we discussed where we found that radio communication was difficult and often many of our scenarios might not include radio communication, so we included a small segment on how to communicate through a radio. Covering diving physiology isn't suitable for this summary, but we talked about a paper in Frontiers in Physiology, October 2022, that covered diving at altitude, high altitude, pulmonary edema, and this new entity called immersion pulmonary edema can happen in fit individuals exercising vigorously in the cold. Well, these entities, IPE and HAPE, both appear to have the same clinical presentation, but immersion pulmonary edema can also happen while you're underwater because of hydrostatic pressures, whereas high-altitude pulmonary edema is mainly due to an increased pulmonary artery pressure. Immersion pulmonary edema will happen within an hour or two after diving, whereas high-altitude pulmonary edema, it'll occur more slowly over a day and a half or more at high altitude. However, both can likely happen at the same time. Oxygen descent and probably nifedipine or a PDE5 inhibitor might be the way to go. Ahora estamos probando algo diferente, un artículo para llevar a casa y un resumen muy conciso sobre el edema pulmonar por inmersión frente al edema pulmonar de gran altitud en español. Si lo desea, puede saltárselo.
a ver si la gente de todo el mundo encuentra útil la traducción. En el artículo, los autores compararon ciertos líquidos de ultrasonido en caso de que un ecografista en las montañas no tenga gel. Además, ¿por qué llevar peso extra en gel de ultrasonido cuando se puede improvisar? Los autores son del noreste de Estados Unidos, donde se obtiene fácilmente jarabe del arce. Los protocolos de medicina prehospitalaria incluyen el jarabe de arce para revertir la hipoglucemia en esta parte del país. Los autores se preguntan si el jarabe del arce podría utilizarse como sustituto de gel de ultrasonido, lo cual resulta fascinante. El medio utilizado tenía que ser inofensivo para los modelos de ultrasonido y tenían que ser materiales que se pudieran obtener comúnmente en un hogar determinado o un producto de grado alimenticio. Se utilizaron agua, jabón, champú, aceite de oliva, geles energéticos, desinfectante de manos, a base de alcohol, crema solar, loción para la piel y jarabe del arce. Es probable que el uso de algunas sustancias a base de hidrocarburo, como el DIT, el aceite de motor u otros lubricantes, sea perjudicial para la sonda y tampoco es ideal para el uso humano. El uso de alcohol en gel probablemente esté bien, pero puede causar problemas con la huella del transductor de ecografía y puede anular la garantía del fabricante de ultrasonido. Aunque los ecografistas no estaban cegados, los que revisaron las ecografías sí lo estaban. Se eligieron las vistas FAST o IFAST, una ventana cardíaca y de la vena poplitea. Se obtuvieron 160 grabaciones. Los ecografistas eran adjuntos de medicina de urgencias con una beca de formación en Wilderness Medicine y los revisores también eran adjuntos de medicina de urgencias con experiencia en ecografía. En general, todos los geles improvisados no fueron inferiores excepto al gel energético que se consideró muy, muy pegajoso. El diseño del estudio era bueno, aunque es obvio que es posible que no se tenga grave del arce en la mochila. Tal vez funcionaría la miel. Es probable que haya otras sustancias improvisadas que no se estudiaron. Curiosamente, el protector solar no era adecuado como gel sustitutivo. Nico y yo hablamos brevemente de un viaje que hicimos a la isla Catalina frente a la costa de California con un grupo de programas de becas de medicina de Wilderness Medicine del suroeste de Estados Unidos. Hay un escenario que discutimos donde encontramos que la comunicación por radio era difícil y a menudo muchos de nuestros escenarios podrían no incluir la comunicación por radio, por lo que incluimos un pequeño segmento sobre cómo comunicarse a través de una radio. Cubrir la fisiología del buceo no es idóneo para este resumen, pero hablamos de un artículo en Frontiers in Physiology de octubre de 2022 que cubría el buceo en altitud. El tema pulmonar 
de altitud y esta entidad llamada edema pulmonar de inmersión pueden ocurrir en individuos en forma que se ejercitan vigorosamente en el frío. Ambos parecen tener la misma presentación clínica, pero la edema pulmonar de inmersión también puede ocurrir mientras se está bajo el agua debido a las presiones hidrostáticas, mientras que el edema pulmonar de altitud elevada se debe principalmente al aumento de las presiones arteriales pulmonares. El edema pulmonar por inmersión se produce una o dos horas después de la inmersión, mientras que el edema pulmonar por la altitud se produce más lentamente durante un día y medio o más, a gran altitud, obviamente. Sin embargo, ambos pueden ocurrir al mismo tiempo. El oxígeno, un descenso, y posiblemente el nifedevina o un inhibidor de la PDE, 5 podría ser el tratamiento correcto. Nous essayons quelque chose de différent maintenant. Un article importé est un résumé très concis sur l'édème pulmonaire d'immersion par rapport à l'édème pulmonaire et des hautes altitudes en français. Passez outre si vous le souhaitez. Nous allons faire un essai pour voir si les gens du monde entier trouvent la traduction utile. Dans l'article, les auteurs ont comparé certains liquides d'échographie au cas où un échographiste en montagne n'aurait pas de gel. En outre, pourquoi transporter un poids supplémentaire en gel d'échographie quand on peut improviser Les auteurs sont originaires du nord-est des États-Unis, où le sirop d'érable est facile à obtenir. Les protocoles de médecine préhospitalière incluent le sirop d'érable pour l'homme version de l'hypoglycémie dans cette partie du pays. Les auteurs se demandent si le sirop d'érable pourrait ou non être utilisé comme substitut au gel d'échographie qui est fascinant. Le milieu utilisé devant être inoffensif pour les modèles à haute raison et devait être constitué des matériaux que l'on peut se procurer couramment dans un mélange de nez ou d'un produit de qualité alimentaire. L'eau, le savon, le shampoing, l'huile d'olive, les gels énergétiques, les désinfectants pour les mains à base d'alcool, les crèmes solaires, la lotion pour la peau et les sirops d'érable ont été utilisés. L'idée d'utiliser des substances à base hydrocarbures telles que le dite, l'huile de moteur ou d'autres lubrifiants est probablement mauvaise pour la sonde et n'est pas non plus idéale pour l'homme. L'utilisation d'un gel à base d'alcool est probablement acceptable, mais elle peut causer des problèmes avec l'empreinte de la sonde d'échographie et peut annuler la garantie du fabricant d'échographe. Bien que les échographistes n'aient pas été aveugles, ceux qui ont examiné les échographies l'ont été. Les vues IFAST, cardiaques et de la veine poplitée ont été choisies. 160 enregistrements ont été obtenus. Les échographistes étaient des titulaires de médecine d'urgence ayant suivi une formation en wilderness medicine. Et les examinateurs étaient également des titulaires de médecine d'urgence ayant une expérience en matière d'échographie. Dans l'ensemble, tous les gels improvisés 
n'était pas inférieure à l'exception du gel énergétique qui a été jugé très collant. Eh bien sûr, la crème solaire n'était pas bon. La conception de l'étude était bonne, même s'il est évident que vous n'avez peut-être pas des sirops d'érable dans votre sac à dos. Le miel pourrait peut-être faire l'affaire. Il existe probablement d'autres substances improvisées qui n'ont pas été étudiées. Il est intéressant de noter, oui, que la crème solaire ne convenait pas comme gel de substitution. Après, Nicolas et moi avons brièvement discuté d'un voyage que nous avons effectué sur l'île de Calitalina, au large de la côte californienne, avec un groupe de participants à des programmes de formation en Wilderness Medicine du sud-ouest des États-Unis. Nous avons discuté d'un scénario dans lequel nous avons constaté que la communication sur la radio était difficile et souvent, beaucoup de nos scénarios n'incluent pas la communication sur la radio. Nous avons donc inclus une petite partie sur la façon de communiquer avec une radio. La physiologie de la plongée n'a pas sa place dans ces résumés, mais nous avons parlé d'un article paru dans Frontiers in Physiology en octobre 2022 qui traite de la plongée en altitude. L'édème pulmonaire de la haute altitude est une entité appelée édème pulmonaire d'immersion peuvent survenir chez les personnes en bonne santé qui font d'exercices vigoureux dans le froid. Les deux problèmes semblent avoir la même présentation clinique, mais l'édème pulmonaire d'immersion surviendra sous l'eau en raison des pressions hydrostatiques alors qu'à haute altitude, l'édème pulmonaire des hautes altitudes est principalement dû à l'augmentation de la pression dans l'artère pulmonaire. L'édème pulmonaire d'immersion s'est produit dans l'heure ou les deux heures qui suivent la plongée, tandis que l'édème pulmonaire des hautes altitudes s'est produit plus lentement, sur une période d'un jour et demi, au plus à haute altitude. Cependant, les deux peuvent se produire en même temps. L'oxygène, la descente est éventuellement, ou peut-être la nifedepine ou un inhibiteur de la PDE5, peuvent être la solution. That'll do it for this edition of the Wilderness Medicine Podcast. This is a production of Elsevier, so be sure to fill out the CME questions. Be safe, get educated, and have fun outside. And please contact us for further questions and until next time.